Well, we finally got some NFL draft information. I wonder if our pressure on that had something to do with that being released Monday morning. We'll talk about it on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. You guys loving the spring weather? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, yep. I'm loving it, too. I'm having major hay fever, but I think that's partly a reaction to the uh, coronavirus shot. My kids are wearing shorts to school. They are happy. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> People break out the shorts at like 35 degrees. That's right. <laughs> and then they put them away in August when it's 65. That's right. All right, let's start. Is it open season finally for the coronavirus vaccine in Ohio? Is there anyone who is not eligible for it? And how can people under 40 get a shot right now. And what, Jane Cahoon, did Governor Mike DeWine have to say about the ample supply in areas of the state that supported him versus the thin supplies in more Democratic regions? A lot to go through there. Let's start yeah. with who's eligible. Well, if, if you want to get a vaccine and you're 16 or older and you can't find anywhere in your county to get it and you have the means you can try driving somewhere else, maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe more. And you can probably find some place that has extra that they, they need to get rid of, like some of the rural areas, for example. So on Monday, DeWine authorized providers to now make the vaccine basically available to anyone over 16 or 16 or older, you know, if they have doses that are otherwise going to go to waste. So it, essentially, he's opening it to everybody, although he said technically, you know, people 16 and older don't become eligible until March 29th. Right now it's 40 and older. But, you know, we've seen a lot of messages on social media from people in urban areas driving to rural areas. And we, we've we heard anecdotally about this too, just, you know, to get their shots. And so to answer your other question, Laura Hancock asked Governor DeWine about this at Monday's briefing saying, you know, was this a miscalculation to send too much to the rural areas and not enough to the urban ones, or whether politics played a role in this. Since, as you said, DeWine had a, an 88-county strategy for his election and lots of support in those rural areas. So he, he pushed back pretty firmly and said, you know, that's not what we do. Uh, and he said, when you look at the top 10 counties that are getting the most vaccinations out by population, you see a number of rural counties in there. And later they provided us with the, you know, the top ones, you know, which were largely rural and suburban. But I guess that doesn't really tell you, does it, whether those were people coming from cities? Yeah. To get... So first, okay. telling telling people under 16, they'll have to drive down to rural counties basically puts them in competition with a lot of older folks that have been having trouble getting the shot. So this actually makes it harder from the frustrated people we've been hearing from that still cannot find a spot. But her question was very much focused on why didn't you adjust when when you he, he talked about his formula. This is based on population and poverty rates. OK, that's right. what you started with. But very clearly, very quickly, you had surplus in rural areas where you have political support and major shortages in urban areas where you don't have as much political support. And he never answered that question. Instead of opening up the vaccine early to people 16 and under who are in much less danger of, of getting sick from the coronavirus, why didn't he just move the vaccine to the people who needed it? Yeah, he, he didn't really address it. He just kind of flinched and said, 
Laura, you know, you know better than that. You know, yeah, but I that's don't what do people that. say when actually you don't know better. I mean, that's like, <laughs> oh, you know me, I would never do that. Well, if you're saying that, then maybe you would. I don't know. I, I think, you know, we're going to do some work on this to try and ferret out how this was done. But it still feels like the people in our coverage area are having a lot of trouble finding a shot while pharmacies in rural areas don't know what to do with all their extra vaccine. Right. And DeWine acknowledged that that some people are driving 30 minutes or more to get a shot. And he said, I wish it was closer to home, but I don't blame them for going to where they can get it, you know, because getting it quick is the right thing to do. But he could make it closer to home know, by adjusting where he sends the damn stuff. I, I don't know. Well, we have more work to do on this one because his answer was very unsatisfying. There's still a chance to change this. There's still a chance to shift the surplus to the people who want it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What did the NFL have to say about the Cleveland draft next month when the NFL finally broke its silence? Laura Johnson, we put on a full court press last week because we could not believe six weeks out they were being secretive about everything having to do with this draft. We piled it on. We had a story last week. It ran in the Plain Dealer Sunday. And lo and behold, first thing Monday morning, the NFL revealed its plan. Yeah, there's still a lot of details we don't have. We don't know how many fans can attend the draft or how they're going to be socially distanced or, you know, who's going to headline the concerts. But we do know where it's going to take place when it happens April 29th through May 1st. There's going to be a main stage right on Lake Erie. It looks like right next to the Science Center. There's going to be a fan experience that is free that people can go to to have fun around the draft. And then there's going to be like an inner circle where invited guests from each of the 32 teams and some vaccinated, those people will have to be vaccinated, some other vaccinated guests will get to sit closer in. But we still don't know like where regular people are going to get to go to watch the draft. So there's a lot of questions left to be answered. But yeah, we got a, a, a news release at 930. We had a press conference, um, like a phone press conference at 1130. And they did try to answer the questions that we asked. They just, they still don't know a lot of stuff. Well, I, I was glad that they finally came out. And I, I'm pretty sure we had something to do with it. It was very frustrating. This is a public health issue. You could be bringing lots of people into Cleveland who aren't vaccinated and we could have a, a bit of a surge. They did have incredibly strong protocols at the Super Bowl mm-hmm. in Tampa, but even they acknowledged there was a bit of a surge, a small surge after that. So it was about time they came forward. I, I don't begrudge them not knowing the numbers of people they'll allow because by the end of April, things could be very different. The vaccine is spreading, although it's spreading in Ohio, I think, faster than in some other states that are near us. Like in True. Michigan, people can't get the shot that can get it in Ohio, although they could drive to Ohio, I guess, and get it. <laughs> Can um, I jump in here? I just Layla want, Tassi. you know, so in our past story, last story about this, uh, about the draft, it said that that hundreds of thousands of people usually come to the host city for right. this event. What for? I mean, I, I, I I'm sorry. No, I, I, don't, I don't mean to disparage like the NFL fan community, but I'm wondering why do so many people follow this like, event? I thought this was a thing you watch on TV and it eat chicken used wings to be for and, like 50 years that, you know, when they had it in New York. But then I guess 2015, they started going around to other cities in Nashville. I was there days before the draft. It happened to be my spring break two years ago. And it the fervor, like people just literally lined up on the road to watch. To do what? Know, to watch I people mean, get picked and they're hanging out with their friends. And they're watching and they're, it live or they're sitting in a bar 
doing no, what they would have done at home. They were oh no! In the middle of the street, watching they shut watching, down that whole Broadway. Watching people get picked. Yeah, Layla. Oh, man, the I aer- don't get it. The aerial photo <laughs> of Philadelphia when it was in Philadelphia, it, it was shocking. The throngs of people standing around waiting for a name to be called. It would be like having a half million people gather to watch the lottery balls get picked. Hundreds I, of thousands. Yeah, I, I don't get it either, but it's an event. NFL is the king of the sports. Right. And they, and they, they bring in people just, you know, the commissioner is going to be there. They're going to oh have NFL God. legends come in. They're going to have autograph sessions. And then this fan experience, I'm sure my kids are going to want to go, you know, where they have like, you know, the Lombardi trophy on display and you can vertical jump against NFL players on LED screens. So, you know, it's an event and people can say they went to the draft. Well, and remember, Layla, until last season, for the Browns for 30 years, <laughs> the biggest day of the year was draft day because they had nothing else to be excited about. That's so good one. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How about we handicap the Cleveland mayor's race now that the former city councilman, Zach Reed, is formally in it? What are his chances, Leila Tassi, against the other legitimate candidates we're seeing, Justin Bibb, Dennis Kucinich, and Kevin Kelly? Okay, well, here's my two cents on this. <laughs> I'm sure that's what you want to know. So I covered Cleveland City Hall for, for some years, and I, I like Zach Reed as a person. I really do. And he was wildly popular in his ward as a councilman. He didn't come close to beating Frank Jackson in 2017, but I think that that might have had more to do with the loyalty of Jackson's base than it did with Reed's electability. So I really do think he stands a chance this time. I, I do believe that. Now, this campaign, he will focus a lot on the city's violence epidemic, which is among the issues that matter most to Clevelanders right now. And I think he's going to talk a lot about economic development in underserved areas of the city. And, you know, all right, I can point you to a story that I wrote probably a decade ago where Zach insisted that Mount Pleasant was on the verge of a renaissance and had the potential to become the city's next great arts district. And he had this NOACA grant for a traffic study, and he was ready to court these investors with the help of the CDC out there. And when I visited the CDC and asked them about this plan, the director unrolled this old design of the neighborhood from the last time that Reed got excited about it. So although in the field of candidates, Reed is the most experienced with how things work in the city, that could also really hurt him because he hasn't always delivered on some of the initiatives that have been most important to him. And uh, then you've got this fresh young candidate, Justin Bibb, who it just seems everybody is so excited about on social media. And although he has zero experience, His catchphrase retort to that is, I'm the least experienced in the status quo. And that really, really resonates with some people, specifically younger voters, who want to see that disruption to the status quo. I I think you're crazy. (laughs) I'm not not issuing an endorsement of Justin Bibb. I'm just explaining that is he's he is the disruptor here. He's a great guy. He really is a great guy, but he knows nothing about government. He hasn't spent any time in it. And anybody that looks at government, it's a complicated thing. Look, the thing you said about Zach and public safety, he has the bona fide now of having run four years ago saying the most serious issue facing Cleveland is violent crime, and I'm the candidate to do something about it. We have to get it under control. He lost, and violent crime now is worse than it was then. He can come back and say, look, I was right. 
This is about violent crime. I don't think any other issue is going to matter to the residents of Cleveland. That is the overriding issue. The neighborhoods are dangerous. There's no control. We had more homicides last year than at any time in 30 years. And that puts him in a very strong position. Except remember, remember the criticism that was always lobbed at him is that, you know, remember Frank Jackson kind of calling Zach Reed the poverty pimp because he would constantly criticize the administration for not doing enough on issues related to crime. And yet Zach really didn't have the concrete ideas formed to tackle the issue. Remember, he came to us with the white paper that he and Jeff Johnson had where they had studied the issue of crime. And it was it was so fascinating, but there weren't the concrete underpinnings. I mean, they 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 said in the end, you know, we need to convince the the business community that it's in their interest to invest in solving this problem. I, I see that as a super heavy lift. And Zachary has a lot of goodwill in the community, but uh, I just don't I just don't know if I see that coalescing. On the other hand, Zach is a huge proponent of the kind of grassroots initiatives like like cure violence that see violence as a public health crisis that needs to be solved rather than, you know, just a, a law enforcement issue. And I am a huge supporter of that, too. And I see that as the way forward. And maybe he would make a huge investment in that kind of intervention. But I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. Um, I, I, I think you're you're overcomplicating it. I think he just says crime, 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 more police, more police, more That never police. worked for him before, though. It didn't work but, before. But he was running against a very popular incumbent. I think it was going to be very hard for anybody to beat Frank Jackson. Frank Jackson, people respect his authenticity, his genuineness. This time it's open season. And so, look, that recent poll that was done, it had Kucinich with, with what was it, 25%. Reed was second with 13 I'm sure he has some negatives and, and some things that are part of that, but he's he's a very good campaigner. He did emerge in the to get into the runoff last year with Frank Jackson. That's so true. But now what about Kevin Kelly? But Kevin Kelly, I don't think, has that same ability to campaign. He comes across like a, a college professor. And and you talk about getting blamed for what's going on in the city. He's been city mm-hmm, council mm-hmm. president for eight years. People can say, look, what have you done to stop this violence? Well, and I think the thing that will really hurt him was his opposition to the $15 minimum wage when that campaign came to Cleveland. I mean, he was he was right that raising the minimum wage in Cleveland alone and nowhere else in the state would have severely disadvantaged the city. But he really fell on the sword for that for that position to the average voter being reminded of that during this campaign season. Kevin Kelly might be remembered as someone who was against raising wages for working Clevelanders. And not only that, but back then he vowed to throw his support to a statewide effort for a higher minimum wage. And he never really followed through on that. He and, does have a half million dollars to try and that's right. put the message out there. But I, I, I look, my prediction at this point is it'll be Zach Reed versus Dennis Kucinich in a runoff. And I have no idea who wins that one. <laughs> well, honestly, for most Clevelanders, I don't know if Kucinich and his time here as mayor and even his time in Congress really register for a lot of especially younger voters. The younger voters, no, but but on the east side, the older voters treasure him, according to that poll. Huh. I mean, he's the leading candidate. He has people that really respect him, probably not from when he was mayor, because that was kind of a disaster, but from when he was a congressman. But we'll have to see. I, I mean, I think he, if he runs and he did send out postcards for St. Patrick's Day saying, 
reelect the mayor Kucinich, which is probably not legal. No, if I he don't runs, think so. <laughs> he'll be he'll be in the runoff. I I would bet. And with with Zach in, I think that hurts Justin Bibb quite a bit. But you know, turnout is terrible. It was terrible in the presidential election. So it's not going to take a huge number of votes to make a difference here. We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. This is one of our most popular online topics. So let's see if it's a popular podcast topic. How much did charter fishing increase during our pandemic year in Ohio? Laura Johnston, as you ran rockthelake.com, I think you were always surprised at how well fishing stories did. Yeah, people love fishing. I I mean, I've tried fishing. I don't really get it. But, you know, people don't get why I like beach glass. So to each his own. Fishing Booker, (laughs) which is the world's largest online service for booking recreational fishing trips, said that bookings in Ohio jumped nearly 80% in 2020. That's over 2019. That makes Ohio the eighth top performing state in the U.S. and the only one in the top 10 on the Great Lakes. So Michigan did not see this kind of jump. Obviously, this is during the pandemic. There was a shutdown in the spring when the fishing season would have really just been starting, but they recovered. This was an outdoor activity that you could do with your your pod of people, get on a boat, and online reservations for fishing charters, I guess, across the world grew by 24%. So you don't always realize it, but Lake Erie is the walleye capital of the world. We have some amazing fishing here, and people come from around the country to try it. Well, and I guess, right, it's the social distancing. You can do it with people in your bubble and and not get sick. So interesting that it rocketed like it did. It's so peaceful to be on the lake, right? And and if you don't own a boat, your chances of getting out on the lake are slim and there there really isn't anything else to do. I I would go (laughs) fishing right now to get out of my house. That's a really good point, Layla. We did a bunch of stories last year on just how much boating went up, like how many pe- boats people were buying it, that industry was skyrocketing. So if you can't afford a couple thousand, you know, $20,000 for a boat, you can afford a day of charter fishing. Right. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What do we expect today from Joe Biden's first visit to Ohio as president? And what kind of reception can he expect from Governor Mike DeWine, who wholeheartedly supported Donald Trump for president? Jane Cahoon, why is he coming? He is coming to Columbus today, and it happens to be the anniversary of the signing of the Affordable Care Act 11 years ago when he was the vice president. It's going to be his first visit to Ohio as the president, and he's coming as part of this tour he's doing to promote the American Rescue Plan, the $1.9 trillion stimulus coronavirus relief package that he he just signed recently. Specifically, he's, he's going to visit the James Cancer Center at Ohio State and and call attention to a $100 million grant that the hospital got under the Affordable Care Act to upgrade its radiation oncology department and enable them to help more cancer patients. And DeWine is also going to talk about, in general, how this American Rescue Plan can lower health care costs. If if I could just plug Rich Exner for a second, we're, we're plugging him a lot on this podcast, but he does such good work. He had a column last week about all of the things in the rescue plan dealing with Obamacare. And I think a lot of people, you know, they think about the the stimulus payments they're going to get. They think about the unemployment and other aspects of this. But there is a lot in there about Obamacare with premiums going down and out-of-pocket expenses being cut for some people. So 
I would expect that Biden is going to try to articulate some of that stuff. And as far as Governor Mike DeWine goes, he says he and First Lady Fran DeWine plan to greet Biden when he arrives and welcome him to the great state of Ohio. He he said he had a good relationship with with Donald Trump and he's got a good relationship so far with the Biden administration. And the governor also said he hopes to talk to Biden a little bit about how the coronavirus response is going in Ohio. And maybe they'll talk about the FEMA-assisted mass vaccination center that they have at Cleveland State that seems to be going so well. So, you know, this whole stimulus package, even though DeWine says he would have voted against it, it has broad public support. So Biden is really trying to capitalize that and going around the country with this tour that he calls Help is Here. Do you think he'll make any kind of announcement? Is he bringing any goodies with him? Another mass vaccination clinic for Cincinnati or something? That I don't know. I I think judging from what he's done in other states, he's just touting different parts of the bill. But you never know. Maybe maybe there'll be some announcement associated with this. All right. We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What can people with relatives in nursing homes do today that they could not do during most of the pandemic? Leila Tassi, this is actually a really big deal for such a simple gesture. (laughs) Well, so a couple weeks ago, DeWine announced that nursing homes could allow visitors indoors again, as long as most residents are vaccinated and and COVID cases in in the surrounding area are limited. Well, now, drum roll. Nursing home residents can have visitors in the rooms and hug them again. Um, it provided the masks are worn. It, visitation can still be limited, of course, in facilities where fewer than 70 percent of residents are vaccinated. As long as the building is in a county with a COVID-19 test positivity rate uh, less than 10 percent, it's permissible. If there's an outbreak in the facility, of course, that that changes things, too. But this is super exciting. I can't imagine what life has been like for for folks who are in these facilities who haven't been able to hug a loved one in a year. I'm going to get teary just thinking about it. Think about that. (laughs) If your kid could not hug you for a year, how devastating it would be. And as of today, they can embrace. It's a it's been a long journey for them. you know, watching uh, anytime they sh- on on the news, they show a video of, of of someone hugging a family member who they haven't, you know, for a year. I lose it. I just lose it. This is like for me when I see anytime I see a video of of children reuniting with their parents who are in the military overseas, I lose it then, too. And my <laughs> husband picks up on this and he will like you know, bait me into watching these things just to get me to cry. And so he told me the other day, he goes, I think these re- these uh, COVID reunion videos are your new military kid videos <laughs> because I can't take it. It's so it's just this is the moment. I'm so it's I, it's it's heartrending. It's amazing well, to see these things. nursing homes were hard hit. And Jane Cahoon, we hit a pretty big threshold of cases over the weekend, right? Well, I was just going to say that this is one of the saddest stories of the whole pandemic is the isolation of people in nursing homes. But also, it's a hopeful story now because the people in nursing homes were prioritized for vaccinations. And this number of cases has just steadily been dropping at nursing homes. They actually hit a high of more than 5,000 patient cases in mid-December. And last week, we had 
570. So that's a real dramatic change. When you talked about the milestone, were you talking about the, the million cases well, overall? We, Is we, that what you were Overall, and, and yeah. let's face it, there was a lot of death in nursing homes throughout the pandemic until right. the vaccine was prioritized. This has been a tragic story in the nursing homes. Reason to hope, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the fact that they can embrace, Layla's right, that's going to just have people losing it all over the place. I think also, you know, DeWine's expanding the list of circumstances that qualify as compassionate care visits. You know, I, I, I applaud the governor for, for that. You know, these aren't and, and these are in, in, in facilities where they don't necessarily qualify yet for visitation under the covid rules. These and they're not necessarily residents who are at the end of life. They're patients with dementia and people who are having a difficult time adjusting to life in the facility. People who are grieving the loss of a spouse or basically anyone who needs the support of family to make those, you know, to carve out those exemptions for them, I just think is is so important. and and good on the, the governor for that. This is Laura, Laura Johnston. Johnston. I, the governor also said they have to allow a minimum of 30 minutes. And it sounds like a lot of, we've heard this over and over in the pandemic, people complaining, I, I can't see my loved one. And it's been the institutions themselves. So he's saying, you've got to let them have at least a half hour. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Will we ever go more than a few weeks without talking about the most screwed up taxpayer funded project in Cuyahoga <laughs> County history? The move to install one computer system to rule them all. We must be on cost increase 257. Laura Johnson, what is the latest, latest bad news on this horrible project that is the legacy of Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish? Yeah, this is just unbelievable. The county's hiring yet another consultant to address 40 quote unquote urgent problems with this ERP project. And it's going to have to hire more. So on Monday, the Board of Control, which is a group of county elected officials, and they agreed to spend $90,000 to hire this former employee of an ERP contractor who will work for six months. And there's already hired three other ones. They want to hire three more. Originally, this this program was supposed to cost $25 million and be complete by the end of 2018. Now it's supposed to cost nearly $36 million and they are nowhere near done. They keep finding more problems. So those 40 urgent ones, there's another 80 issues that need to be addressed that are not quite urgent. You keep thinking, because this is almost a monthly story about more bad news, that someone would take over and and just, you throw every resource you have at it and fix it so that it never comes up again. But every time we say that, there's three more nightmares. It's like whack-a-mole, right? Like you get one down and got a whole bunch more. The level of incompetence here is is unprecedented. It raises questions about whether we should have changed our form of government because back in the days of the county commissioners, we never had anything this screwed up. I mean, you have to laud them for trying to update a computer system that must have been, you know, decades behind, like think about the state unemployment system, but it had to be better planned than this. This is ridiculous. Yeah, the only one that's worse is the state unemployment system. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does Ohio Governor Mike DeWine think his chances are of persuading the legislature not to override a veto he will issue today on legislation that impairs his power to issue health orders? Jane Cahoon, he issued a lot of those health orders to get us through the pandemic. He feels very strongly about this, but the legislature has a supermajority. Yes, they do. But he evidently still thinks there's some chance of persuading them because he sent quite a lengthy letter, five 
pages to all 132 lawmakers on Monday, laying out why he thinks Senate Bill 22 is such a bad idea. And he talked about it once again at his his briefing in the afternoon. It's the first time DeWine has really written to lawmakers in this way before a veto bow. He usually lays out his reasons in a in a formal veto message when he actually vetoes it. But as you said, he he plans to do this today, the veto. And uh, we've talked about these reasons before, but he said in his letter that this this could create a serious tragedy by by limiting local health officials' power to require people to quarantine or self-isolate without a specific medical diagnosis. He said that would leave health officials helpless to stop the spread of a disease or a foodborne illness while they wait on test results. And he also said it, it could create an avalanche of lawsuits because it would allow people to sue over the constitutionality of any state emergency order and get attorney fees if if they win. So, you know, he's just talking about all these lawsuits. <laughs> and then on top of that, he thinks it's unconstitutional and violates the separation of powers. But he said, you know, he he understands that many of the lawmakers didn't agree with the things that he did during the pandemic, but he really hopes that they can come to some kind of compromise that would give his fellow Republicans in the legislature this oversight that they desire to have without going down all of these slippery slopes. So he wrote a five-page letter filled with logic to a body that still has Larry Householder as a member. Yeah, we, we've talked not about the fully right. repealed House Bill Six, and and has members in the past who've sought to have him arrested. And, and, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and don't believe in wearing masks in the yeah, state I mean, house. This is headed to the don't courts. Don't believe in following his orders anyway. So right. that's the mentality you're doing. They're not, yeah, they'll, I bet they override the veto and they'll have to appeal to the Ohio Supreme Court to do the right thing here. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Jimmy DeMora got some more bad news. What was yesterday? Monday, right? And <laughs> I'm losing it's it. Not Friday yet. Leila Tassi, the circle is getting smaller and smaller of his options. What happened in the courts yesterday? Well, so Demora's attorneys are still fighting to have some of his charges thrown out. But yesterday he was rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court, which really has made his path more difficult. Everyone knows Demora serving 28 years in federal prison on 32 charges related to this pay to play scandal that really completely upended the way county government operates in Cuyahoga County. Demora's lawyers, in their appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, drew upon a 2016 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that narrowed the definition of what could be considered a, quote, official act that prosecutors must prove to gain a bribery conviction. So, for example, if a company bribes you in exchange for your vote to award them a contract, the vote is considered an official act, but making phone calls or setting up meetings in exchange for those gifts is is not considered, a fi- those aren't considered official acts. So Demora's lawyers argued that while Demora accepted a trip and steak dinners and home improvements from business leaders and contractors, he didn't trade a vote or other official act for any gifts. He simply made phone calls and set up the meetings to facilitate those deals. Whereas Frank Russo, his longtime ally and the disgraced former county auditor, accepted cash in exchange for jobs. He rigged an election. He took part in this million dollar kickback scheme. Also, Demora's lawyers argue that 
Demora disclosed those gifts on state ethics forms, whereas Russo tried to hide the bribes. Demora's lawyers say that the trial judge, Sarah Leoy, gave the jury instructions that allowed them to consider those unofficial acts when determining his guilt. Also, the judge didn't allow those ethics forms to be submitted as evidence, which could have helped his defense had they been allowed in court. So even though the Supreme Court rejected the case, a federal appeals court did partially rule in DeMora's favor back in August based on those same arguments. But his conviction wasn't overturned or anything. It was just sent back to the trial court for the judge to reconsider how a jury might have ruled differently based on the new case law. So now that it's settled that the Supreme Court won't hear this case, we'll finally get to see how it shakes out for DeMora before Judge Leoy as she reconsiders. I, I thought he would get this one. I thought that the North Carolina ruling, as wacky as it was, would apply and that he would get out. The fact that they did not take that part of the case is surprising uh, and, and bad news for him because Judge Leoy clearly thinks that what she did was right. So as she reviews this, I expect she'll come back and say, look, whatever I did, the evidence was overwhelming against him. This wouldn't have made a difference. He'll appeal that. But unless he gets a better uh, a better hearing from the appellate judges, he's in trouble and he could right. spend much longer. I, I think, too, if he got out now, the message was delivered. They gave him a 28 year sentence to say to anybody else who's considering being corrupt, this is what happens. The message was delivered. Does does he really need to spend the rest of his natural life in prison now? Or has he really served the penalty for all of his crimes? Mm, I don't know. He also caught COVID in prison, didn't he? Yeah, he's, he's he did. suffered yeah. quite mightily, I would I would say. You know, interestingly, one of the, the federal uh, appellate judges who heard this case dissented from the other two and said that if it were up to him, he would have he would have given Demora a new trial and that that would have been the only way to to bring justice to this, given given the new case law. So I'm interested to see how Leoy uh, shakes out on this one and, and whether Demora will try to come back at it at the Supreme Court level. Maybe by the time he does get out, we'll be back to a county commission form of government because <laughs> what we replaced him with is such a nightmare. You're listening <laughs> to This Week in the CLE. All right, we've gone long. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. 